This morning we're going to wrap up our study in Philemon. So if you want to begin to make your way there, we're going to be in verses 15 through 25, but really focusing in on 15 through 20. Let us read this together and then give ourselves to the careful study of God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes and says, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping, uh, through your prayers, I will graciously be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So as Paul writes this, and as it's sent out, and and now it is being read there before this church there in Colossae, before this group, he recognized that there are really four groups of people. And so there's Paul, who's kind of placed himself as this advocate for reconciliation, this advocate that the redemptive work of Jesus would be felt, would be seen, would be displayed in this group. There's Philemon who's received this, and and it's primarily directed to Philemon, and he's hearing these words read out, and he's weighing in his mind, what is the cost? Will I submit? What does it look like to submit? And so he's hearing these things, receiving these things, and he's making determinations on what he should do on the basis of these things. And then all the while there's Onesimus just kind of standing over here, hearing these things being spoken to Philemon, and he's wondering in his mind, how is this guy going to hear and receive and apply these things? Because how he hears them, how he receives them, and how he applies them has direct impact on Onesimus, who's really just there to receive whatever is doled out. He's really just there to take in whatever is dispensed by Philemon, And then all the while, one of the most important groups is the church. This isn't played out in isolation. It's not like Philemon's in this back room and they said, hey, listen, Philemon, we have this letter to the Colossian church. We also have another letter to you. We want you to read it, apply it, and we're just going to go with whatever you decide. Instead of that private reality, it's a very public scene there where he is hearing this played out. And the church is wanting to see what it's going to look like for this brother to hear a word from Paul and then how he's going to change or continue to live on the basis of this incredibly costly direction that the Apostle Paul offers to him. Now somewhere in this, we come to, come to the understanding that there is a heavenly reality about our relationships one to another. And so if you are redeemed, if you would say that, that you're, you have fellowship with Christ, that his blood stands and has paid the penalty and the punishment for your sins and for your separation from God, that Christ has borne your punishment, that you are united with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you would say this is your testimony, then when you meet another 
Christian, you, when you meet someone else, which that, this is their testimony, this is their life, this is the direction of the way that they live, then the heavenly reality dictates that you are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have one king who reigns over all. He is our heavenly father, and we find each other in, in a heavenly reality, being brothers and sisters one to another. Now, what we'll recognize is our lived experience isn't always that. Our lived experience isn't always that. And find, in fact, frequently what we find is, I, I just really don't like Wilson. I just, I just really, well, actually, I really do like Clay, but I just really don't care for Wilson. Perhaps it's because he has a Baylor mask on. I just find myself looking at that and saying, that's reprehensible. I'm just going to move over here to the other side of the room. Oh, look, here's somebody else I like. He doesn't have a Baylor mask on. This is probably the reason why. And so we find that our, our lived experience is not always an accurate representation of our heavenly reality but what the apostle paul seeks to do is to bring these brothers to bring this church to witness the coming together of the heavenly reality in their lived experience to where our lived experience should be an active testimony to the heavenly reality that is in the heavenly reality that will be and so that's the challenge before us and that's the challenge before them See, the Apostle Paul enters into the midst of this, and what he recognizes as the facts of this case is that one party has left, Onesimus has, has departed, he has left Colossae, and he has left Philemon uh, wanting, he has left him feeling that he has suffered. And so Paul is seeking to mend these brothers' relationships. Now look at what he enters into over here in verse 15. He says, for this, this separation, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. Paul is entering into the idea that, that perhaps God was doing something. Now I think it's fantastic to note and instructive for us to observe that Paul doesn't dogmatically come down and say, this is exactly what God was doing, and you have to witness this, and you have to testify to this, that this is exactly what God was up to. He has this open-handed approach because he's in the midst of these things, and so he's suggesting to Philemon perhaps the greater thing that God was doing was affecting salvation in Onesimus' heart. And I think we can see this even by the gentle way he describes Onesimus' departure from Colossae. Look at what he says in verse 15. He doesn't say, for this perhaps is why he ran away from you. For this, is, this, perhaps, is why he disappeared in the middle of the night. No, instead, he places the onus on the Lord as having been involved and invested in this. And he says, perhaps this is why you were parted from him for a while. So that he could be changed. So that he could be made new. He describes it this way. He says, that you might have him back forever. And in this fundamental change in reality for Onesimus, we recognize it opens up the possibility for a forever different kind of reconciliation. As they apply to their lived experience the reality which exists for them in the heavenly realms, that he might have him back forever. Now look at how Paul describes this change in relationship for him in verse 16. He says, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. No longer as a bondservant, but as more than a bondservant. Now, when he left, certainly he was a slave. And certainly during the time that he has been in Rome with Paul, still hanging over him, 
is the idea that he is owned, that he is the property of Philemon. But now as he stands, as Onesimus stands within this church, within this assembly, and he's hearing this read out, it is hanging in the balance of his his relational dependence upon, and in in some sense, how Philemon is going to interpret this and how he's going to apply this. So the Apostle Paul gives him a clear direction here. He says, listen, now that you have him back, recognize a fundamental shift and change has been affected in Onesimus' life. He is now more than this. He's not just some guy that formerly you looked at and you said, listen, he's not even very good at being a slave. In fact, Paul previously described him and said that he was useless, but now you find him to be useful. But look at how Paul further intensifies the relationship that is now true of Philemon and Onesimus. He's no longer a bondservant, but he's more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. He's been completely changed and completely transformed. And Paul brings himself into the midst of this relationship, and he says, listen, he's a beloved brother, especially to me. So you've got the apostle Paul, for whom many in this region would have come to faith, for whom would have, would have had terrific notoriety within the first century. When the churches spoke of people that were influential, people whose direction they followed, they would have said, we certainly follow Paul. We recognized him, and this is what Paul says about Onesimus. He says, he's not just a brother to me, but he is a beloved brother, especially to me. So within, within Philemon's mind, he should have been receiving this and recognizing, oh my goodness, this guy's incredibly important to Paul. He is not just some useless person that was formerly a part of my household, but he is integral to the ministry of Paul. But Paul doesn't just stop with the idea that this is what he is to me. Look at how he connects Philemon within the realm of this discussion and this argument. He says, this is what he is to me, he's a beloved brother, but how much more to you? How much more to you? Philemon's never going to change his opinion of Onesimus if he solely looks at him in a matter of utility. If he solely looks at him and says, this is kind of what our relationship is and this is the nuts and bolts of it, but he doesn't value him as a brother, if he doesn't value his humanity, then he's never going to feel this prompting to alter the state of their relationship in the state of kind of who they are to one another. So Paul describes it first and says, listen, he's especially a beloved brother to me, but so much more to you. Now what Paul is doing here is driving at the heart of where Christians should come down and how we should understand the importance of salvation and changing somebody's life. I want us to look quickly at Luke 15. As I think Jesus does a great job just giving us just a couple of quick pictures of this. Luke 15, we see three quick accounts or three quick stories of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Now, as the lost sheep comes along, We find that there is a shepherd and he's got a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away. And what does he do? The shepherd is is so bent on returning this lost sheep that he leaves the 99 and he goes out and he seeks to secure it and he seeks to bring it back in. And then verses 6 and 7 it says, And when he comes home he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me. 
The fact that I have found the sheep is a matter of celebration. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. But Jesus says, just listen, this is important, but just so I tell you that there will be much more joy in heaven over one sinner than repents over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus says, when we see somebody change their life, when we see somebody give their heart to Jesus, when we see Jesus save this person and God to pull them back from the flames of hell, when we see this happen, all of heaven breaks out. I mean, like there are pinatas of Satan everywhere. The angels are dispatching them. It is a party. It is all kinds of crazy when one person comes to faith. So he moves on. He says, listen, there's this lady, and she has a coin collection. And she loses a coin. And she searches diligently all over her house thinking, I have to find it. My collection's not complete until I find it. When she finds the coin, she's so incredibly overjoyed and so incredibly taken with elation that when she has found it, verse 9, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that was lost. And Jesus turns and he says, Listen, you need to understand, that's important. But just so I tell you, verse 10, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We recognize the elation experienced in heaven over repentance and brokenness. The fundamental change of relationship that happens when we see someone come to faith in Jesus. It changes how we view them. It changes how we see them. So Jesus goes on and he tells a much longer story about a son who went to his dad and he said, Dad, essentially I wish you were dead. I want what's coming to me. When you die, would you give me my inheritance? The dad gives it to the son. The son goes away to the far country and he lives wildly. He seeks to satisfy himself. He seeks to satisfy his heart. He seeks to live and appease the God of his belly. He does whatever he wants to do, and at his lowest moment, he's down there, and he's watching pigs eat, and he says, that looks delightful. I wish I could have some of that, and in that moment, he recognizes this has to be the bottom, or certainly this is as low as I can go. So he sets in his mind, he says, listen, I got to get back to where I was, but I recognize that the relationship with my dad, it can never go back to what it once was, but maybe I can sell him on the idea of me being a day laborer. Maybe I can sell my dad on the idea that I could be a day laborer, that some days he'll use me and some days he won't use me, but just if I show up, we'll have this agreed upon rate. Dad, I'll work for 25 bucks a day and a hot lunch, and this is just kind of what our relationship is. So he says, this sounds good to me, so he picks up and he heads back, and he is sold on selling this to his father. He's rehearsed his speech, and This is what he wants to say to him. Starting in verse 18, he says, I'll rise and go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Treat me as a day laborer. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still, the text tells us, a long ways off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This had to have been shocking for the son. 
He had so led himself to believe that his relationship with his father was beyond repair, so led him to believe that his relationship with his father would never get any better. The best he could hope and beg for from his father was to be a hired servant, hired on in the morning if it, if it pleased his father, and sent away in the evening and with no greater obligation. When the father sees the son, He's not thinking at once about the hurt. He's not thinking about once about the betrayal. What he's thinking in his mind is, there is my son. There's the one I want to be compassionate towards. There's the one that I want to receive back. And so he moves in correspondence to his emotions. And he moves in correspondence as a father towards his son. The son receives this, and it is really throwing him. But he knows his speech. He knows what he needs to say to his dad. So he seeks to interrupt the kissing, and he says to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the dad cuts off his speech. He doesn't even respond to it. He calls to his servants, and he says, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Why? For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is what Paul wants Philemon to see. It's so practical to our minds that when someone has radically offended us or hurt us, that we need to first kind of come to the elements in the areas of agreement. This is what you've done. This is what I did. Let's work this out. But we must first be motivated and moved by a brokenness and a compassion to see real change happen in someone. This is what happens when someone comes to faith in Jesus. He can never receive Onesimus back as just a slave. He can never receive him back as just someone there as a part of his household because he has fundamentally changed. He was dead and he's now alive. He was lost and he's now found. The strength and weight of the gospel a gospel that changed hearts, that, that raises people from the dead, a gospel that restores us to the Father, a gospel that redeems us is the gospel that is laying there, taking effect on Philemon's heart. And what the church sits, sits back and watches is will this gospel have its full effect on him? How is a gospel of redemption? How is a gospel of forgiveness? How is this going to be at work in this brother who was justifiably wrong? Bionesis. How's it going to affect him? How's it going to impact him? And in some sense, that's, that's the question that all of us have to answer. When we're wrong, when we're betrayed, when we are sinned against. How will we receive back the one who has wronged us? And for those of us who have been the ones who have wronged those around us, Frequently, what we have in our hearts and in our minds and, and falling out of us is, will we be received back? What is our relationship going to look like? 
What acts of contritionness or brokenness do I need to engage in? How must I display my brokenness to make it appropriate? Some of us in this room and in our lives, we play the role, not of Philemon, but the role of Onesimus, and we stay gone because we fear what it would be like to come back. We've experienced the rejection, we've experienced the hatred, we've experienced the cast off, and we reckon that this is what everyone will bring to us and our experiences. This is certainly what we've received from the church. And certainly this is what the church has done. Certainly this is what the church does do. And certainly this is what the church will do in the future. be a hard and hardened group to forgive. The ultimate heavenly reality has no place in the lived experience of many churches. The ultimate heavenly reality has no place in many of our hearts. The ultimate heavenly reality for many of us, we don't want that to be our lived experience. We don't want to go through that pain. We don't want to go through that anguish. We don't want to go through that difficulty. We don't want to have to go through the process of making amends. But we recognize this is the work of the gospel. And this is why Paul, as an advocate for reconciliation, inserts himself in the middle of this and effectively grabs both of these brothers by their, by their tunics and pulls them together. It says, won't we see the power of the gospel unleashed in your relationship? Yes, he clearly wronged you. Forgive him. You see, but Paul's not really only willing to step into the middle of this to tell two brothers to do the right thing. Paul is willing to step into the middle of this and take the penalty and the punishment for someone else. Paul turns to Philemon and he says, listen, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Whatever grace would come to me from you, give that to Onesimus. So he's saying, this is how you treat this brother. You treat him like you would me. Later on in the letter, we recognize that he calls for a room somewhere to be put up. Then in verse 18, he says, listen, if he's wronged you at all, we recognize he has. If he owes you anything, and we would recognize he does. Charge that to my account. All the penalty and the punishment, all the anger and frustration you feel towards Onesimus, keep that on me. All the bitterness, all the frustration, all the disappointment that you feel towards Onesimus, let me bear that. This is how desperately he wants these brothers to come to terms. Paul essentially finds himself in the middle of these things and takes upon himself the role upon himself the role of Christ that he describes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come, and all this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. To every man, woman, and child in this church who names the name of Jesus, you have been given a ministry of reconciliation, reconciling lost sinners to God and reconciling brothers and sisters in Christ to one another. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us a ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, 
be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In the great unfolding narrative of history, we recognize that it pleased the Father to allow all the sin for humanity to be atoned for by the Son taking on that sin. Jesus took upon himself your waywardness. Jesus took upon himself your selfishness. Jesus took upon himself your lust. Jesus took upon himself your hate. Jesus took upon himself your pride. Jesus took upon himself every sin of your past, your present, and your future. And he did so willingly because he knew that none of our relationships and none of our persons could bear the weight, the penalty, and the punishment of that sin. And this is what Paul says he's willing to do for these two brothers. If he's done anything to wrong you, if he's done anything, charge that to my account. Charge that to my account. This is the picture of zealousness the Apostle Paul gives us for unity of the body of Christ. This is the picture, the zealousness that we should feel amongst one another. When our brother or sister comes to you and says, I, I know of this fracture in this relationship over here. You should bend heaven and earth to bring those brothers and those sisters back together again. When we hear of churches have splits and turmoil, it should be our endeavor, it should be our heart to see the heavenly reality become the lived experience. We should expend our capital making this happen. Paul says, I'll pay it. He wants Philemon to recognize that there's not only one debtor in this relationship. There's not only one person that looks at Paul and says, that's the guy. So he reminds him of his own indebtedness towards Paul. He says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even yourself. In essence, he says, do you remember when you were lost, when you were dead in sin? Do you remember when you were spiritually blind and I shared the gospel with you and the Spirit moved in your life to produce conviction and now you walk in newness of life, not because you're a great person, Philemon, but because I share the gospel with you. You owe me your very life. He calls him once again to act faithfully towards Onesimus. He says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. I want you to refresh my heart in Christ. And the fantastic thing there is this word of refreshing. It's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 11 and verse 28. When his appeal is, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. See, as Paul looks at their relationship, and he looks at what their relationship means and how it's going to impact this church, he has said in his mind and for this church that Paul receiving rest depends on these two brothers coming together. That should be where we are. That should be what we want. Jesus' invitation to come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, finds all of us in 2020. 
I haven't found very many people in 2020 who are just running the race and they're saying, like, I'm not weary, I'm not heavy laden at all. Except for the delusion few. People that own their own islands and such. But man, this is gospel work. And this is church work. Paul closes this section and he moves through and it's the parting farewells and it's the prepare room for me and I hope to come to you. But when Paul began this letter, you'll recognize it was primary, primarily to Philemon in verse 2. We get to the end and he let us know that the church is watching, that the church has an important role to play in this. Verse 3, he extended grace and peace to all listening. And then here at the end, he clues them in on the fact that it's going to take a work of grace to see this brought to reality. It can't be by sure will of force. It's going to take hard work. It's going to be difficult. And it's going to take the grace of Jesus Christ working in their midst. This is when he finishes and says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, plural, in your spirit. Listen, the requirement for us as a church in a group of people and the desperate need we have for the grace of Jesus to be at work in this place can never be overstated. We are dependent each and every day, each and every Sunday as we gather together, and every Sunday afternoon as you go back to your homes and you turn off the live feed and you go back to reality, the heavenly reality finds us all being in terrific peace with one another. But the difficulty becomes when we want to see our heavenly reality become our lived experience and our present purpose. Some of us over the next few months maybe even this week, you will have an opportunity to be an advocate for reconciliation. You'll have an, an opportunity to be an advocate for reconciliation. Now I can tell you this may go a couple of different ways. It may go really well for you. You can go before your brother, your sister, your kids, or whoever it is, and you're advocating for reconciliation in a relationship, and it could go well for you, and I hope that it does. But a failure on the part of the people you're working with to be reconciled doesn't demonstrate a failure to you. God calls you to faithfulness and to obedience. He doesn't call you to the results of this relationship. Not everyone will be reconciled one to another. Some of us are going to play the role of Philemon. The determination of reconciliation is really going to weigh on you. And you're going to have to determine what you're going to do on the basis of somebody sinning against you and somebody failing you. And that's something that I would encourage you to appeal to the grace of God at work in your life, the grace that you have received previously, and to spend time in prayer asking the Lord, what would it look like for me to forgive? What would it look like for this relationship to be restored? And to walk forward in that, in care, in grace, 
and in mercy. But some of us in this room and some of us in this hearing, you're Onesimus. You recognize you've done wrong. You recognize you've broken trust, you've fractured relationship, and you might have done it a hundred times. And the fear plaguing your heart is that you will never be received back into those relationships. And the hard reality is that some of the relationships with some of those people, you will never be received back into. The possibility that the hurt is too deep, that the wrong that you engaged in scarred them too deeply, you may never get those relationships back the way that you want. But you have to be faithful to make the appeal and trust in the provision of God, even if it means the absence of those relationships. Now listen, all of us play the role of the church. And as the church, we feel ourselves moving towards advocating reconciliation all the time. Because as the church, we are constituted on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus. He is our atonement. We have been reconciled to God on the basis of what Jesus has done. Paul says we are sent out as ambassadors for him. We pray that reconciliation will be the course of this body. We pray that larger, that as Ridgecrest works with the other churches in our community, that it works with other churches globally, that we would be those who are reconciled one to another, that we work well with each other. I think this is one of the difficult things, kind of beautiful slash ugly, of the Southern Baptist Convention, that we are a convention of churches who are known for disagreeing robustly. If that's not been your experience, you've never been to an annual meeting. And by the joy of the internet, you can sit in on the dysfunction that is the annual meeting. But man, we get to see the gospel show up beautifully and wonderfully in diversity. And I think we get to see it in our community as we work together with other brothers and sisters of other different churches in, in ways they articulate their faith. Amen. And my prayer for us over this Christmas season, as we head into Advent, we talked about the fact that Christ has come. Because Christ has come, he has made us reconcilers. Because Christ has come, humanity is re- has the possibility of being reconciled to God. Let us be bold in proclaiming that in embedding a world right now that is incredibly weary to receive that. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you that you give us an opportunity to join you in the powerful work of reconciliation. Father, I pray that we would be those who want to be about the work of your gospel. Father, I pray for the men and women and the children in here that find themselves in any one of these various roles, that by your grace you would sustain them, by your grace you would lead them. And by your grace you would be honored by them. 
Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. They have find themselves unreconcilable, beyond redemption. That in your kindness, that you would call them to yourself by the power of your spirit. That they would experience rebirth. That they would move from being lost to found, dead to life. That today you would open their eyes and give them sight to see you, to see forgiveness, and to be embraced by your son Jesus. We submit these things to you in his name. Amen.